climate activists tell us that the world will end soon if we keep burning fossil fuels. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. So many want to ban fossil fuels altogether. I wish the activists would just read this book. Then they learn how fossil fuels make the world better. And we need more of them if we want poor people to live better lives. The book's by Alex Epstein. Here's my full interview with him. It's odd to hear someone talk about a moral case for fossil fuels. To me, it's odd that people don't. Fossil fuels have made the world a better and better place for human beings to live. Before fossil fuels, the world was a deficient and dangerous place. Life expectancy was 30. Now the world's an abundant and safe place for billions of people, really for everyone. But there are still billions of people who are poor and could benefit far more if they had low-cost, reliable energy. And so the moral case for fossil fuels says, yes, we, the wealthy world, should continue to use fossil fuels as well as pursue any cost-effective alternatives. But particularly the poor world should eagerly make their lives better by embracing fossil fuels as well. Almost nobody values fossil fuels. You've lost the war of public opinion. Well, I, I don't know if anyone valued fossil fuels before I started. So I think I've won over quite a few people uh, to fossil fuels. But what's happened is, you know, after the 1970s, uh, people started to value energy more. I think they also started to value freedom more and they started to fear inflation more because of what the 1970s uh, displayed and made very concrete. Fuming in their cars, waiting impatiently in long lines. But the problem is now, you know, 40 years away from that, 40 plus years away from that, people forget what it's like to have shortages. People forget what it's like to line up for hours uh, for gasoline. People take for granted the availability of natural gas. What we're seeing now is with all these restrictions and threats to the fossil fuel industry, both the production of fossil fuels and the transportation, we're starting to experience that acutely. And I think this is a big opportunity to show people, hey, fossil fuels are amazingly valuable and there is no near-term replacement. Uh, that's why we're having all these problems. So the fact that in Europe, you know, modern Europe, they are afraid of freezing to death if the weather gets too cold. Even in the US, we're essentially praying to the weather gods hoping that the winter is not too cold. You know, in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which came out in 1957, there was a character who had thought, oh, in the past, we had to worry about disasters. In the past, disasters were a problem, but not now. And then that society was regressing. But even in the 1950s, today's level of energy impotence would be unimaginable. But because people have been exposed to so much propaganda that fossil fuels are easy to replace by renewables, why wouldn't you want that? I would want that if we could easily replace fossil fuels, uh, including uh, mainly the pollution challenges I'd be most concerned about. If we could easily replace them with solar panels and wind turbines, I would do that. So I don't blame people for being concerned. And, and I, don't, I don't blame people for favoring renewables when they have this propaganda. And I think it's great that they're waking up now that they see, wait, we were told that these fossil fuels could be easily replaced. We spent trillions of dollars in subsidies and mandates putting solar panels and wind turbines everywhere around the globe. And yet we're still having shortages of fossil fuels because it turns out the solar panels and the wind turbines couldn't replace the fossil fuels. But they will. Uh, based on what? based on their getting continually better and cheaper and finding new ways to improve batteries, technology. Texas is a really good illustration of the shortcomings of solar and wind and how these are often glossed over. If you take the week before the blackouts in Texas and you look at the percentage that came from solar and wind, 
it's over 50% of the electricity came from solar and wind. And when that happens, you have this celebration, look, solar and wind are powering everything. But even before any wind turbines froze, just because it got cold, uh, solar and wind totally died out. Again, it wasn't about the frozen wind turbines, it's just when it gets really cold, and by the way, really hot, the wind doesn't blow that much. And so Texas had about one minute of battery storage available. If you run the numbers on what it would take to back up all solar and wind, like an all solar and wind grid with batteries, it's multiples of global GDP. So this is a total fantasy. But they keep getting better, these batteries. They're getting better marginally in the same way that, you know, your average industry might improve one to two to 3% efficiency in a year. What's not happening is the same as happens with microprocessors. There's a lot of false analogies between solar and wind and then microprocessors. But solar and wind have enormous material costs that don't shrink over time. What you can do is you can improve their manufacturing costs, but a lot of that has been done via Chinese slave labor, uh, as well as Chinese dumping and subsidies. So what we're seeing now is you're running into the fact that these require a lot of raw materials and many of those raw material prices are going up. And at today's prices, they are nowhere near able to replace fossil fuels, even for electricity, let alone for mobility. There's a fixed cost for the solar and it's not going down. Right. When you see claims about solar is getting cheaper and cheaper, and you'll see a graph that looks like this, and you think, oh my gosh, it's going to get cheaper than ever, just like hard drive space or Free microprocessor. Power. Right, right. But you have to look at what is causing it to decline. And one way to divide up the costs with solar, even if you leave aside the unreliability, which is its biggest problem, because that requires a reliable infrastructure to support it. But even if you just look at the solar panels themselves, you have to look at the cost both of the materials involved and the manufacturing processes to put those materials together. Now, what's generally declined is the manufacturing processes. Solar still requires a lot of raw materials, including some like polysilicon that are quite expensive to make. Some of the price decline is because of Chinese subsidies. And this is why it's unsustainable. And this is why we're already seeing panel prices go up. And again, given the unreliability of solar, they're nowhere near cost competitive with fossil fuels today. Panel prices are going up? Yes, because of the raw materials. And in general, we're having raw material shortages of different kinds of things. And this is going to get much worse as you try to scale them globally. Many of the materials, really most of the materials in the so-called solar wind battery economy, uh, there is no market evidence that these can scale globally. What's happening is just governments are arbitrarily saying we're going to scale this at an unprecedented rate. And when governments do this versus when this actually happens on markets, you'll inevitably have shortages because the central planners have no idea how much lithium can scale, how much certain rare earth elements can scale. And they're already running into these big limitations. It's not renewables that are spiking in cost now. It's fossil fuels. Right. So there's a question of what does it mean that there are price spikes in fossil fuels? And what it means is that there is an increase in demand relative to supply. And the question is, why is there a low supply of fossil fuels? Is it because there's not enough fossil fuel in the earth? No, there's more accessible fossil fuel than ever. Is it because the industry isn't very good suddenly? No, the industry is more effective than ever at, at cost effectively getting oil, coal, and natural gas out of the ground. So what's happened? Well, the obvious thing we've been seeing for decades that's been really escalating recently, which is massive threats and restrictions against the fossil fuel industry uh, by governments around the world. And the way the renewables are culpable is 
the promise was that if we restrict the production and transportation of fossil fuels, we'd be totally fine because these unreliable renewables would replace them. But this has turned out to be totally false. So what we've had is a, we've had a very effective experiment in whether after trillions of dollars of money and mandates around the world that unreliable solar and wind can actually replace fossil fuels. And the fact that we're having shortages of fossil fuels because solar and wind can't do the job is an indictment of solar and wind, as well as an indictment of these restrictive policies against fossil fuels. Solar's getting cheaper all the time. It's already cheaper than fossil fuels. If you want to look at the cost of anything involving electricity, you have to look at the full system cost of using it. And when we look at solar and wind around the world, for some reason, it always correlates to rising prices as well as declining reliability. Why is this? It's because when you buy solar panels, you're not replacing coal plants, you're not replacing gas plants, because at any given time, the sun can go near zero. So you have to buy the solar panels in addition to the coal plants, in addition to the gas plants, plus pay for a bunch of infrastructure. So the key point is solar panels and wind turbines don't replace the cost of reliable electricity, they add to the cost of reliable electricity. Because you've always got to have a fossil fuel plant to back them up. Yeah, or a, or a nuclear plant, but unfortunately the pro-renewable movement is rapidly anti-nuclear. Anti-nuclear, anti-coal, anti-natural gas, anti-oil, anti-any fossil fuel. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. Biden's defenders will say, well, we didn't get rid of fossil fuels. But what people don't appreciate at all is what these threats do to prices. Because when you threaten an industry, what you do is you scare investors and you scare producers because you're basically telling them, hey, if you undertake the production of oil, which is a long-term costly process, then you are not going to get rewarded, or at least there's a good chance you're going to get punished. Well, if you, if you send that message to the market, then the market will flee from coal, oil, and gas. And this is exactly what has happened. So even though Biden's, most of his restrictions haven't yet taken hold, it's not like the Keystone pipeline being stopped directly raises the price. What has happened is his massive threats to industry have definitely cut down production and definitely raised prices. Good, say the environmentalists. This will speed our transition. It is Biden's actual view that it is good to raise the price of fossil fuels, but he does not want the political consequences of raising the price of fossil fuels. And this is what I find incredibly disingenuous about the green movement right now. If they said, you know what, today's prices are just a taste of things to come. We want fossil fuels to be far more expensive. We want to have a price of gasoline at the pump. Like when I debated Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he said, yeah, gasoline should be over $12 a gallon. $12.50. What would happen? We'd all be driving electric cars. But they don't want to say this publicly. Most of them don't. They want to say, oh, we want to get rid of fossil fuels. Uh, and But we want, in the meantime, coal, oil, and gas are going to be cheap. Your bills won't go up. And then they'll be magically replaced by solar and wind. But they can't be magically replaced by solar and wind because solar and wind don't replace costs of fossil fuels. They add to the cost of fossil fuels. So in reality, the only way to, quote, replace fossil fuels is to make energy unaffordable. You say unaffordable, but who's to determine what that is? If we're going to save the planet from climate change, we need to pay more. We live in a society that has no clue about how valuable, low-cost, reliable energy is. Because the general narrative is uh, we're destroying the planet with fossil fuels, so who cares how much energy costs? 
But the truth is the exact opposite. The planet is only livable because of low-cost, reliable energy from fossil fuels. Historically, life expectancy was below 30. Income was basically non-existent, which means everyone had very few resources. The population was stagnant because people had such a high death rate. And the basic reason is that nature is not a very livable place for human beings. The earth is naturally deficient and it is naturally dangerous. And the only way we can prosper and flourish is by being extremely productive. And the only way we can be extremely productive given the physical weakness of our bodies is to use machines to create immense amounts of value. And what fossil fuels do is they give us low cost, reliable energy to power all the amazing machines that make us productive and prosperous. Fossil fuels power, for example, a modern combine harvester that can reap and thresh 700 times more wheat in a day than the best manual laborer. Think about what that does for our productivity. Think about what that does for the livability of the earth. As I've also pointed out, as fossil fuel use has gone up, climate-related disaster deaths have plummeted. This is because the climate is naturally dangerous we make it unnaturally safe by producing all forms of climate protection. We produce drought relief through irrigation, through drought relief convoys. We produce sturdy buildings. We produce uh, heat when it's cold. We produce cold when it's hot. We have this amazing productive ability. That's the only reason we experience the planet as livable. It's livable. People lived on the planet before we had practical fossil fuels. So the planet is livable in the sense of the species did not, of human beings did not go extinct, but it is not livable by what I would call the standard of human flourishing, which means that everyone has the opportunity to have a long, healthy, fulfilling life. That is a total modern phenomenon that depends on modern fossil-fueled productive ability. Make the human flourishing live a little bit by talking about people in India. They want practical fuel. So a statistic that really resonates with me is when I was born in 1980, more than four out of 10 people lived in extreme poverty, which means less than $2 a day. And just think about what that means to live on less than $2 a day. It's unimaginable to us in the wealthy world. Now, 40 years later, it's less than one in 10. So we have just eradicated an unprecedented amount of poverty around the world. How has this happened? Well, if you look at China and India, the major places where this has happened, it's very clear. They've used a lot of fossil fuel to uh, power a lot of productive machines that have enabled them to have unprecedented prosperity. Now, do they still have problems relative to us? Yes, but their life expectancy has skyrocketed, their resources have skyrocketed, their opportunities have skyrocketed. And what we face today is the decision, are we going to let the 3 billion people in the world who still use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator, are we going to let them empower and be prosperous and have the opportunity to have their first well-paying job their first consistent supply of clean water, you know, the first time they're not worried about uh, food shortages, are we gonna allow them to have a modern life? Because that's going to depend on fossil fuels. And I look back when I was born in 1980, and I look back at the many thinkers then who said we should get off fossil fuels to quote, save the planet. And I'm so grateful we did not listen to them because billions of people would be worse off and we'd all be worse off because we wouldn't have innovations like the internet uh, without all the energy that we've used in the meantime. Uh, and I look at today's situation in the same way. I view today's world as radically underpowered. And I think it's criminally ignored that there are billions of people who are poor and who will not become wealthy if they don't have low cost, reliable energy. And that's going to require more fossil fuel, not less. And would you say, are we going to allow? It's not up to us to allow. India and China have billions of people who want 
refrigerators and air conditioners, and they're going to build coal plants. They should. I mean, what we definitely have an obligation to do is to do nothing to stop it. And if you look at a lot of what's happening today with, say, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there is enormous pressure on different countries to stop using fossil fuels. Every country, every city, every company, every financial institution must radically, credibly and verifiably reduce their emissions and decarbonize their portfolios starting now. And I would say the biggest victims are not China and India because they've started fossil fuel industrialization. And once things are started, they're hard to stop. But the real victims, I would say, are in Africa, because Africa is much earlier in terms of empowering, in terms of industrializing. And so these different international commitments we make, the different international pressures we, we place on them are going to be far more influential when things haven't started. So you look at, for example, in Africa, there are many countries that have dictatorial regimes. And so if the UN offers a bunch of climate-related payoffs to people to not, to not use fossil fuels, many dictators will take that with a smile, but their whole population is going to suffer. So that's where I worry the most, is the people who have by far the least in the world, they're the most subject to today's international pressure against fossil fuels. But the fuels pollute. They do damage that way. Well, what, what we see is there's very little pollution in places like the United States that are wealthy. But uh, if you take some place like India, yeah, they do have pollution issues. And part of this is bad governmental policies where the pollution is preventable. But part of it is that when you're poor and still becoming richer, you have to make trade-offs between certain levels of air emissions and then other things. So if you take, say, a mother, well, there are a lot of mothers who are really grateful that because they have modern hospitals, their kids aren't dying during childbirth. There are a lot of mothers who are grateful that even if their kids do get asthma, they can actually get treated for it. So you need to look at the big picture. But what about climate change? Fossil fuels are making it worse. It's interesting that people have the view that fossil fuels, if they impact climate, which I definitely believe they do, A, that it's all bad, and B, that it's catastrophic. And I don't think either of those uh, are justifiable. I mean, if you look at what more CO2 in the atmosphere does, you have to admit it leads to a lot of greening because CO2 is plant food. And you also have to admit that warming is generally desirable in the world, particularly if you look at the physics of warming, where most of it occurs in some of the coldest places in the world, particularly the Northern Hemisphere. So it's places like Siberia getting warm. This is why there's so much focus on the Arctic because it's disproportionately warming there. But that's generally a good thing. Like we generally want it to be warmer uh, in colder places. Uh, in general, in the world, we have far more cold-related deaths and heat-related deaths. So this doesn't mean that warming is all good or even that it's mostly good, but it shows that we have a bias against human-caused warming that we assume that it's all bad because we did it. And regardless of whether warming uh, and CO2 are net good or net bad on their own, the energy that comes with them makes them net incredible. And we can see this in the data about climate-related disaster deaths, which is the most important climate-related data. How much are people actually dying from storms and flood, extreme heat, extreme cold? And what we see definitively is that we have a 98% decline in climate-related disaster deaths over the last 100 years because nature didn't give us a safe climate that we made dangerous. It gave us a dangerous climate that we have made unnaturally safe, and fossil-fueled infrastructure is a huge part of that. All right, so, so far, warming seems to be saving lives, but this probably won't continue, and climate change may be a real big problem. And you're just saying, let all the fossil fuels go out. 
My background is philosophy. A rule I have is I only accept predictions about the future from people who acknowledge the reality of the present. If you look at 99.9% .9 of people making climate catastrophe predictions, those people do not acknowledge that today we enjoy unprecedented safety from climate, nor do they acknowledge the significant benefits of warming, and most of them won't even talk about the significant benefits of greening, which are obvious, and even the NASA climate people have, have finally acknowledged that after a long time. Greening meaning what? Meaning that if so, if you look at the if you look at the planet from satellites, and you can see you compare from let's say 1985 to 2015, you know how much of it is green to various degrees. There's an enormous increase in the amount of green around the world, including areas with very little human contact. So the areas with human contact, you could say, oh, well, we created that. But the areas without human contact, what this is showing is that more CO2 in the atmosphere means more plant food, which means more green. And NASA about five or six years ago finally published a very beautiful graphic that shows the global greening. It's, it's an image that has most of the earth in a green color in the same way that today they'll show you most of the earth in a red color if they're trying to show warming. And what that shows is just so much of the earth has gotten greener and very little has gotten browner. So when people do not acknowledge that today we are masters of climate and that any negatives of rising CO2 have been totally overwhelmed by the benefits of fossil fuels, not only in general, but for climate in particular, I don't trust their predictions about the future because they are climate mastery deniers. They do not factor in the fact that we can master almost any conceivable climate change. I've spent a lot of time in my book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and even more in Fossil Future, really thinking about what climate change could actually be a problem for human beings. And I could only think of three. And one would be an indefinite acceleration of temperatures. Like if temperatures just kept going like this. Right now, temperatures are about... 13 degrees Celsius, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, colder than they've been in some of the most lush periods of the planet. So we actually have no way of getting anywhere near there. CO2 is about one-tenth of what it was in some of the lushest periods of the planet. We have no way uh, of getting there. So the idea that temperatures are going to accelerate indefinitely is actually physically impossible, given what we know about the history of the planet, as well as what's called the logarithmic diminishing nature uh, of the greenhouse effect. The only other two things I can think of are one is a multiplication in the intensity of storms so that storms are two, three times more powerful. So at least using current methods, we have no ability to deal with them. But if you look at the projections about storms getting worse, they're something like 5% worse, 10% worse, often less frequent. This is nothing resembling a catastrophe. And the only other thing is sea level rises in feet per decade. So if we had sea level rises in feet per decade, then that would really challenge coastal areas. But what we see is we have sea level rises at one foot a century right now, and even the extreme projections are three feet a century. We have 100 million people who essentially live below sea level already. Our ability to master sea levels so far outweighs any conceivable sea level rise that we don't have to be worried about it in any existential way. We just have to be worried about having freedom, including the freedom to use fossil fuels, and the freedom to adapt to things as they change, and we're going to have much bigger changes to adapt to than climate change in the next 100 years. The fossil fuel industry has limitless resources. That's people like you. 
the fossil fuel industry has very limited resources compared to people like Jeff Bezos, who gave $100 million to the National Resources Defense Council and $100 million to the World Wildlife Fund, which are both anti-fossil fuel and anti-nuclear groups. Uh, but even the fossil fuel industry these days gives far more to anti-fossil fuel causes than to pro-fossil fuel causes. You see ExxonMobil has given over $100 million to some climate catastrophe group uh, in Stanford. And so the truth is, if you talk to most people who are skeptical, not of climate change, but climate catastrophe, they desperately need money. I'm in a little bit of a different situation, in part because I'm a commercial success, but the idea that people who challenge fossil fuels are getting tons of money thrown at them is a total farce. You look at protests, for example, you've seen that protest where there are 100,000 plus people marching in New York City, and I have an I Love Fossil Fuels sign. Well, one of the reasons that there are so many people there is they pay protesters. Is anyone paying 100,000 people to support the fossil fuel industry? Not in my experience. Who's paying protesters? Greenpeace. That's part of their business model is they pay protesters, they pay people to hold signs. You know, you get harassed by Greenpeace people, probably. I've been harassed by a lot of Greenpeace people. I don't see a lot of ExxonMobil representatives. But if you run the numbers, the amount of money being spent on pro-fossil fuel activism or anti-climate catastrophe activism is a tiny fraction of what's spent on climate catastrophism, let alone all the unlimited free media and government support for climate catastrophism. What climate catastrophism, what climate catastrophists do not like is that they are not able to have this dream green dictatorship that they want where everyone is forced to use solar and wind. Dream green dictatorship, that's what they want? Yeah, I mean, when you hear people say, I want to transition from fossil fuels to solar and wind, it's left ambiguous. How is that transition going to happen? And we see it's certainly not going to happen with the free market. And it's certainly not going to happen if you prioritize cost and reliability. Otherwise, China would not be using more and more fossil fuels, which they are. So in order to get people to get anywhere close to 50%, 60%, let alone 100% solar and wind to even attempt that, you need to use government force and you need to use dictatorial power. And the reason is the more you force people to use solar and wind, the more you create cost and reliability problems, and the more those damn pesky voters start to get annoyed. That's really what's happening. They do not like the fact that voters get annoyed when they make electricity unaffordable and unreliable. And their way around that, by the way, is corporate ESG. They're trying to dictate to the companies that the companies should use 100% solar and wind uh, because they can't get the voters to do that. And so what the companies are doing is just lying and saying, oh, we're 100% solar and wind. And then they give the voters the blame for their coal, oil, and natural gas. Wall Street sees the writing on the wall and sees that the future is in renewables. Wall Street is playing a really malicious role right now uh, in renewables. I would say the whole corporate world is playing an incredibly irresponsible role. Part of it is a lot of lying about being 100% renewable. Uh, but in general, you know, Wall Street is saying we support net zero. These companies should go net zero. And a lot of what's happening, though, is the government is causing this, because when Joe Biden says, you know, I will end fossil fuel, when governments around the world say we're going to end fossil fuel, we're going to shut it down, Wall Street listens and they say, hey, we don't want to be a part of this. We're not going to invest in this. And this is really dangerous because energy is the industry that powers every other industry and finance is the industry that finances every industry. So when finance decides not to support low cost, reliable energy from fossil fuels, that destroys life around the world. This is one of the most damaging trends in the world. So it is true that Wall Street is defunding fossil fuel. 
and that it is overfunding unreliable solar and wind. And I regard this as a tragedy. Why are they doing it then? Well, one reason they're doing it is because of fear of government policy. If you look at a lot of the justifications for these policies, they'll say, well, you know, Joe Biden is going to ban a lot of fossil fuel use. In Europe, they're doing it. So a lot of it is in response to government. But a lot of it is that activists have very cleverly inserted themselves in the corporate world. And what they've found is that it is easier to manipulate corporations than it is to manipulate voters. And this has been a very deliberate strategy. Bill McKibben, uh, whom I debated in 2012, uh, the, the, the thing that motivated me to debate him is he announced this strategy of we're going to shame the corporate world, the investment world, we're gonna make them like apartheid in South Africa. We're gonna divest from them. We're gonna threaten them unless they make these pledges to go off fossil fuels and on green. And what we found is these corporations are a lot more cowardly and a lot more oblivious to consequences than the average voter. Because McKibben explicitly said, the voters aren't doing what we want, but maybe we can manipulate these corporations. Everybody wants renewable energy and doesn't care much about this. Until there's a shortage, until there's a blackout, or even until prices go up 20%, the people freak out. Suddenly they get interested. Well, the, the thing is, it's understandable that people want so-called renewable energy because we've been told not only by governments, but also by corporations, that it is 100% possible to rapidly replace fossil fuels with renewables. For example, you have companies like Apple, Salesforce, Facebook, Google saying we're already 100% renewable. Make Apple carbon neutral. Wait, no, we've already done that. Which is a total lie. So you can divide this into two basic deceptions. One is how they use operations. So you think, oh, Apple's operations, that must mean all the operations in the company, like the COO presides over all the operations in the company. But no, usually what they refer to are things like keeping the lights in the stores on. They, it refers to a very small percentage of their energy use, particularly the electricity use of their buildings. So this is one fallacy that occurs all the time where companies will use euphemisms like operations to talk about a small percentage of their energy use. So Apple is manufacturing- in Less than half, less than 10%. Much less than half. So for example, I'm documenting Mercedes-Benz right now and what they talk about when they claim to be 100% renewable is, a, is less than 2%. So they talk about their auto manufacturing and it's less than 2%. And you can find this in buried in their reports. This is very, very common. So if you take Apple, for example, Apple operates in China, which has two thirds of its electricity from coal. The way electricity works is you use whatever the grid average is at all times. So Apple is using an enormous amount of coal and it claims to be 100% renewable in its operations. So you can just imagine that what they're always doing is they're taking a small portion uh, of their energy use. And they're saying, oh, this is our operations. And then we're going to call that renewable. But the other thing they're doing is even, even the small percentage of their operations that they are calling their operations is never 100% renewable, particularly 100% solar and wind, because no grid in the world is anywhere near 100% solar and wind. So for example, um, Apple operates in North Carolina, which is 50% fossil fuel. Well, how can they be 100% renewable on a grid that's 50% fossil fuel? what they do is they pay the utility in North Carolina to say, you know that coal and gas that are being used on this grid and that you're using? Apple, you don't get any blame for that. We're gonna put that on the, the consumers and the other companies. So we're gonna attribute your coal and gas use to them. And then you get credit for the solar and wind that they use. The analogy that I have is imagine that Tim Cook wants to travel on an ocean liner, which is powered by oil fuel. 
but he wants to get it 100% renewable. So what he does is he tells the captain, hey, put a sail on top of the ocean liner and that's gonna generate a little energy. And then you tell everyone that I got there with the sail and everyone else got there with the oil. Picturing the ocean liner with the sail and they're paying the ocean liner, they're paying the utility. I mean, like they pay them a direct bribe gift to say- It's called a renewable electricity credit. So this is a standard accounting form of what I would call accounting fraud. Uh, because what's happening is that in reality, you need fossil fuels uh, to be productive today, but companies want the label of being 100% renewable. And so our government-controlled electric utilities have created a solution, which is renewable electricity credits, which is that on a mixed grid that has fossil fuels and usually some small amount of solar and wind, that if you pay a premium, then you get credit for others' renewable electricity usage, and they get the blame for your non-renewable electricity usage. This is standard practice. I think it should be the subject of a class action lawsuit. I think it's totally unfair, but it is universal today. Why is it unfair? They presumably are getting paid more, and they can spend that on converting to renewables. Because the people who are being blamed for apples, coal, and, and oil, and natural gas use don't know about it. So it's, it's an unfair labeling. Um, but the other thing that's happening is it causes these grids to add more solar and wind, which adds more cost and decreases reliability. And the basic reason is because solar and wind are uncontrollable and intermittent, they can almost always go near zero or at, at, rather at any time they can go near zero. This is what happened in Texas. At one moment, it's providing half the electricity, then it's providing almost none of the electricity. That's a big problem. But environmental activists say, we have an answer. By mixing and matching renewable energy sources and building up battery storage, we can keep the lights on 24-7 with 100% renewable energy. I mean, there's just no basis for this whatsoever. This is just a made-up uh, claim. I mean, I could claim that you could power the world with all the energy that exists in the atoms of a swimming pool, uh, but it can't actually happen. So if you actually run the numbers, you use solar panel costs, wind turbine costs, transmission line costs, and above all battery costs, because batteries where you run into the limitations. I ran these numbers doing 100% solar uh, with Elon Musk's best battery prices. And I found that it would cost multiples of global GDP to come up with this imaginary thing. So we're not even one tenth the way to what people are claiming. And solar prices are already going up. The raw material prices of batteries are already causing problems. So this is just a total fantasy, which is why nobody has done it anywhere ever. If renewables keep growing at the rate that they grew the past decade, we will meet 100% renewable energy by roughly 2035. Renewables are not gonna grow in the same way. The way that they've grown is not through the market. They've grown through subsidies and mandates. And what we see is that they, as they start to penetrate 20, 30%, let alone 40%, they cause massive cost and reliability problems. And these, this is just for places like Germany and Denmark that have the ability to import a lot of reliable electricity from their neighbors when they're short on solar and wind. We as the United States do not have this ability at all. We can't just call on Canada or Mexico if we have a massive shortage of solar and wind to bail us out. So no, renewables are not scaling well at all. They're scaling terribly. I hear Texas is a demonstration of you need to rely on alternative energy because you can't rely on natural gas. 
So if you look at the data in Texas, what is unambiguously clear is that when electricity was needed the most, solar and wind were totally out to lunch. And this was before any wind turbines froze. It's just because when you have really cold weather, the sun and the wind don't do much for you. So instead of acknowledging this reality and learning from it, what the anti-fossil fuel movement did is they totally ignored the fact that solar and wind failed. And they said, oh, wait, gas failed because certain pipes froze and certain gas plants didn't work. But what they're not recognizing is that the failures of gas in Texas were not about gas. They were about not making the gas plants significantly resilient. What we saw in Alberta, and I documented this the same week, is Alberta had much worse conditions than Texas. They're overwhelmingly gas and coal, and they had no significant problems at all, again, under worse conditions than Texas. Why? Because they had reliable and resilient energy infrastructure. So what Texas proves is you need both reliable electricity and resiliency, and you need to pay for that. Now, why didn't Texas pay for that? One big reason is because they were investing tens of billions of dollars in unreliable solar and wind. So what actually happened is that the spending on unreliable solar and wind defunded reliability and resiliency. That's the real story of Texas. And that means that if we keep defunding reliability and resiliency with more unreliable solar and wind, we're gonna have even more disasters. It's so crazy, so complicated, and I thank you for trying to explain it simply. Well, good to see you, if, if only online. Good to see you, too. I hope you enjoyed this longer interview. If you want more on the topic, watch our videos on nuclear power and renewable energy.